Hello and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to dive into the future of connected work. I'm your host, Mick Kirsten, Chief Technology Officer of PlanView and the author of the best-selling book, Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing our guest, Professor Mohan Sani, the Associate Dean of Digital Innovation, among other titles. Mohan's illustrious career is punctuated by his extensive contributions to the field of management. He's authored seven impactful management books, including his latest bestseller, The Sentient Enterprise, The Evolution of Business Decision-Making. His research has graced the pages of prestigious academic journals and influential managerial publications, making him a trusted voice in the business world. His influence doesn't end in academia, as he's been a pioneer in online executive education, having created eight highly successful small online private courses covering topics like digital marketing strategies, product strategy, AI applications and growth, and more. These courses have enriched the minds of over 15,000 students. His expertise also extends to advising and speaking for global 2,000 firms and governments across the globe. A roster of notable clients, including Accenture, Google, Microsoft, and Salesforce have sought his insights to drive innovation and success in their organizations. And with that, let's get started. Mohan, welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast. It's great to have you here. I've heard so many things about you before we had a chance to meet, and it's just incredible to me that you really founded this practice of education, graduate education, and, and executive education around product management. So before we jump into what that is and, and where you've taken it, where your colleagues have, have evolved it, I'd just love to hear a bit more about your story, how you got here. You've been doing the actual program for, I think, over 15 years now, right? That's right, Mick. It's wonderful to join you on this podcast. Uh, my journey has been interesting. Um, you know, I started out life as 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 an engineer in India, the Indian Institute of Technology. Uh, so I have a bachelor's in electrical engineering, from which uh, I then went on to do my MBA in marketing uh, at the Indian Institute of Management in Calcutta, and then worked for a couple of years in the corporate sector. And then found my way to Wharton for my PhD in marketing, where my thesis work was actually on forecasting the performance and box office success of movies and movie enjoyment. Uh, and uh, since then, I, after finishing in 1993, I've been at Kellogg for 30 years. It's my 30th year, 2023. And uh, all, all those 30 years, uh, my work has been at the intersection of technology, innovation, and marketing. And, and technology takes different forms, make it, you know, when I joined in 93, 94, it was, it was HTML and World Wide Web yeah. and so on. Then it became e-commerce, then it became mobile, then it became AI, and now it became generative AI. So, you know, I've gone through all those uh, uh, di different technological uh, revolutions and changes. And uh, all, my goal always has been to kind of serve to executives and students as like a GPS to guide them through these uh, changing uh, times. And uh, as far as the product management uh, courses that you were talking about, you know, I realized that in the world of product management, it's one of the most important uh, functions. And in fact, it's like products are the lifeblood of any uh, company's growth, particularly the technology companies. But yet I found that a lot of my students were going into product management roles, but we kind of were, be, were being thrown into it to learn on the job, kind of thrown into the deep end and learn how to swim. Uh, so there was a paucity, a lack of formal training and formal frameworks around product management, product marketing. So I created my first course in, I think, in 2010. Uh, and, uh, and then having taught the MBA program for like over 10 years, I realized that the same lack of uh, training was uh, in, in the corporate world. So in, in 2018, uh, I, I created a set of courses that are offered online virtually. Uh, and now we offer, I offer three of those. There's a course on product strategy for mid-career executives. There's a course on a certificate course on product management for earlier career folks, which is more the doing of product management. And then a chief product officer program for people who want to become chief product officers. And this, these are these courses have reached more than 7,000 uh, students over the past four years since 2018. Uh, so that's that's the journey. And uh, so I live, eat, and breathe this stuff. And, and actually, as these courses, these courses are also products, right? So I'm also a product manager uh, in that sense. 
Right, and, and that is incredible. And and seven thousand students have gone through this. Seems it seems amazing. And then you know the same rate in my own experience. That's that's nowhere near enough. <laughs> so that's nowhere near enough. We're just scratching <laughs> the surface. Uh, as, yeah. as, as as Al Pacino said, in sent of a woman. We're just getting warmed up. Right, exactly. And I think for a lot of us who've been working in this discipline, I know most of the product mentors I've hired have actually come from other disciplines. We've we've you know struggled them in which conferences to send, send them into. Uh, there aren't many programs of, of the sort that you created. Hopefully, you know, others will get inspired by this. But how do you see, having been at this for so long, could you speak about where we are in terms of product management as a discipline? Right, We, we understand yeah, engineering yeah. disciplines and marketing, and maybe product marketing isn't enough of its own in terms of how it how it, the materials available in in marketing programs, but kind of where have you how have you seen it evolve over the last well, yeah. nearly couple of decades, and and really tell us where you where we're at in terms of this this becoming a, a proper practice and discipline because I, I do think a lot of us are struggling with finding that that product talent or also upskilling uh, with the and and growing it in our organizations. No, great great question, Mick, and um, let me. Answer this question in a in a few ways. You know, first I'll I'll talk about the discipline itself and how it has evolved and matured. But then I'll talk about how different industries have adopted uh, product management and need to adopt product management as a discipline, as a culture, as a set of competencies. Uh, so as you pointed out, that when you hire product managers, they sometimes you know come from other disciplines. They come from program management. They come from uh, development and engineering. Uh, in the rare case, they may come from marketing and, and, and so on. So uh, historically, if you go back 20, 30 years, the discipline that first got created many years ago, probably in the 60s and 70s by Procter & Gamble, was brand management. So they realized that you needed one person to, to be the owner of that brand, to be the sort of the business owner, the 360-degree Owner and that that so the brand management discipline was actually created by Procter and Gamble, later embraced by Unilever and many of the consumer packaged goods companies. Now, when you sort of turn to technology companies, there's a different flavor because it's not the see the in a consumer packaged goods company, the core asset is the brand. You know, the product itself may not be as technologically complicated and, and sophisticated. But if you look at uh, technology companies, the product is the core, right? And uh, in fact, the brand in many technology companies, if you think about it, is really at the corporate level. Think about Microsoft, HP, right. and IBM. So it's really kind of the product that's the center of gravity. And while engineering builds the product, while sales sells the product, while UI UX designers create the interface and the interaction experiences, and while the supply chain folks and manufacturing folks are involved in the actual physical building, there was no one person who was orchestrating and had 360-degree view and ownership and was advocating for the customer for a product, right? So that was... So it's kind of like that fable of the six blind men and the elephant, and they were all they have you all the functions have their point of view, but somebody's got to see the whole picture. That led to the creation of the idea of product management or product managers. And these product managers were not necessarily, they were not going to write code, they were not going to manage development programs, but they were going to work hand in hand with the development team for product development. And then a second a sister discipline that evolved was product marketing management, which is now. You know, how do you take the product to market? Again, taking a 360-degree view, but there it would be the sales organization, the partner organization, the you know, the entire go-to-market organization. So that's how it evolved. And uh, what I also find is that product managers get hired typically when a company grows, startup company grows to maybe 50 employees or 100 employees, uh, because the earliest product managers usually are, you know, one of the founders, right? One of the co-founders will be the uh, the, the, the chief product officer if in, in effect. But as the scale grows, as you have multiple products, then you have to step back and hire people who will be responsible for individual products. So that's sort of the product management uh, function. So now this, is, this, this function has evolved and it has become more mature in technology companies. Um, and so today, if you look at uh, any of the major tech companies, there's a well-evolved product management uh, discipline and it is organized differently. I mean, it's just like every company I speak to has a different flavor of how they think about and organize and structure 
product management. In some cases, you have end-to-end. In most companies, you'll have product management and product marketing separated. Also, uh, make what I find is that the reporting structure is very different. Mm-hmm. In some some companies, like at Microsoft, product management reports into engineering. Uh, in Salesforce, for instance, product management is its own reporting line going all the way up to the chief product officer who reports to the CEO, which, by the way, is the preferred structure, in my opinion, that, that product management as a discipline should report straight up to a C-level executive and be its own discipline and function. Now, the other very interesting thing that is that, that the related question that you asked is as you look at uh, what companies and what industries have product managers, traditionally, we've associated tech companies with most closely with product management, right? The, the, the big tech companies, mid-market companies, and so on. But then you start to realize, wait a minute, the B2B industrial companies also need product management. Let's say you're a Siemens or you're a GE Healthcare or you're, you know, or you're, you're Caterpillar or you're, uh, you know, uh, even if you're Ford Motor Company, right? So you have these products. So that's the second layer, right? Which is that any company that does capital goods, that is, you know, industrial products, B2B products, medical devices, diagnostic equipment, construction equipment, ag, ag equipment, and so on. They need product managers, so they have product management. But I think what is very interesting, and that's something we should get deeper into in, in, in our discussion, is the third and much bigger layer, and that is services companies that actually have, uh, that are technology intensive. Think about JP Morgan Chase, think about banking, think about Prudential as a life insurance company, think about, you know, a lot of the IT consulting firms, think of the law firms, you know. So if you think about many of these organizations, they actually are managing products. They have, you know, so if you, if you go into uh, JP Morgan Chase, it has a $15 billion technology budget annually, right? So, and they have, 10,000 people, thousands of people working in something related to product. But these are not products you sell. These are products that get embedded into user experiences, into mobile apps and so on, or become part of infrastructure. So this space of digital product management, I call it digital product management for lack of a better word. It's essentially products that are embedded, that, that, that are, you know, become part of the offering, but are not sold as products per se. So that, if you look at that space, it is massive. All insurance companies, all banks, all, you know, consulting firms, accounting firms, tax audit consulting firms, these are all potential domains where you need their product management skill set and product management culture. But it's hard to do because that's not what the company's traditional DNA has been. Exactly. I think we're, we're both see the massive opportunity in this, right? I mean, the, the really one of the key goals of project to product is for those digital products that companies need to to establish this digital product management discipline and i think that the massive opportunity and it's a really large i think economic opportunity is exactly what you say it's those services it's the banks it's the insurance mm-hmm. companies it's the healthcare companies so i think we're my this is my sense and you know, very rough i think in that we're tracking reasonably well. Every digital native, like you said, after 50, 50 people and the founders needing to do other things, they they bring in a, pro, a product management practice and they, mm-hmm. they have enough to draw on. So uh, there's this story I have from you know, three, four years ago where it was a large, very large bank, 60,000 technology staff across the bank, 20,000 of them in various projects and uh, program management roles. And then, in the course of one quarter, they got the, the they, they they got the bug on, around product management, digital product mm. management, and they changed everyone's title from project manager <laughs> to product manager. Yeah, you changed titles and <laughs> they hope for the best. Yeah. Suddenly, was, we have product management in place. That's right? that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Now, now, what happened after that was was uh, less less graceful than just the rename of everyone's titles, because of course the the skills weren't there. It's a different discipline. It's a it's a right. different way of looking at things. So. I think one and and by the way, I'm still seeing this, right? You know, I, I know we as a company at, at PlanView, we know how important it is for, for us to keep upskilling and training our people. We actually just brought you in this week, this very week, right. Uh, right. to help train our and help our our product managers and product leaders grow. Uh, when I'm interacting with these large enterprises, these these very large established businesses, they're still at the very first steps of that, right? And they're looking at how okay, how given this just the size of the technology and IT workforce that we have. 
How do we take these first steps? And I think the the kind of the, the opportunity in terms of improvement for these for these organizations is just massive because as you said, you've got a 15, you know, 5, 10, 15 billion dollar IT budget. Anything with nine zeros, there, there's a huge, uh, huge gains to be made for doing things effectively and well and in a cu- customer and market-centric way versus versus not bringing that together. So first of all, from your lens though, that's just a couple anecdotes. How do you see the maturity of product management today in these organizations? Yeah, so these organizations that talk about the large technology teams, and these are, you know, many of them are in uh, uh, services, whether it's financial services or, you know, and so on. I think the maturity is, uh, I, I won't even call it maturity, it's its its, it's infancy, it's, it's very right. nascent. Um, and, and I see a lot of what you are saying, I've seen this in other organizations, relabeling, retitling, right? So, uh, so you take somebody who's basically doing project management or who's doing a program management role and you call them, you know, product managers. So you take product owners and call them product managers. That doesn't work because, uh, it's, uh, it's a systemic change. It's, it's a change in mindsets, a change in culture, it's a change in processes, change in skills. There's a, there's, there's a whole set of, uh, uh, changes that you need to, to change management issues that you need to think through. So I think we are at the very, very early stages here in these firms. I think the maturity stage of the product management function is confined to, I would say, probably to the technology companies. And even within the technology companies, there's a wide range of maturity that I see right. of the discipline. Right. So, so there's just a lot more potential. I don't think, you know, when you would ask the question, where are we at? Uh, so all in all, I'd say we're not even 20% of the way there. There's right. just a vast potential for bringing more discipline, more effectiveness, more efficiency, um, and a different mindset to really think in product terms in in a variety of companies. So I think we're not we're nowhere near there yet. Okay, so we we have the benefit of having you here. I think I, 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 in all of my experience, it is it's infancy in in these large enterprises. So I guess I'd like to focus some of the because I've got a million questions I want to ask you, uh, but 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 really. If you could share with us and how you think about what product management is, so what the role is, what the product strategy is, how you mm-hmm. think about vision, I've had the benefit of, of uh, seeing you know kind of the, the crispness and clarity of of your materials and teachings on this. I'd like you to share that, and also any kind of catalyst that you think that organizations can take in terms of doing doing this. Is it is it to really embrace training? Are there other things like, you know, I, I know you talk about measurement approaches like V2Mom from Salesforce. Can those be catalysts? What the catalysts are? And then I do want to make sure we have time to hit on whether generative AI and some of the brainstorming you and I have been doing on, on the impact of that. Can that be another catalyst? But if we could start with you just sharing your vision of, of just what is product management? What's the role? What's what's the strategy? Yeah. What are these mini CEOs that 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 you talk about? So very simply, to, to me, a product manager is a person whose role is to solve customer problems. It's the art and science of understanding customer problems and developing solutions that are desirable, feasible, and viable that meet and exceed customer needs and also meet the goals of the company. So that's really what a product manager does. So, so uh, and, and then the key word here, Mick, is orchestration, right? The product manager is the orchestrator. They don't physically do a lot of the functions, but they make sure everybody's on the same page. So there are three things that I really think about when I think about the product manager role. One, the product manager as a mini CEO, as you were saying, and by the way, CEO in terms of their mindset, not CEO in terms of their authority, because they don't have the authority. But the CEO idea here is that you have to think about all aspects, the business aspect, the technical aspect, the customer aspect, the financial aspect, the relationships and negotiation aspect, you know, external, internal. So all those, you are the one person who is going to take that 360 degree view, right? You are the, you're going to see the whole elephant going back to the six, Vladimir and the elephant. So that's the orchestration. And idea, the general management idea. The other thing is that a good product manager is an advocate for the customer. When there comes a trade-off, when there is a hard decision to be made, do we leave this feature in or, you know, put or, or take it out? You know, what are the trade-offs we make? What are the prioritization we do? Having that deep understanding of customer priorities and requirements and being able to then guide 
what trade-offs need to be made to represent and advocate for the customer inside the company. That is another very, very important aspect of the product manager role. So, so I see product manager as orchestrator. I see product manager as as, as a mini CEO. I see product manager as a uh, as, as a customer advocate. So that's sort of the, the 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 role as I see it. And now, how you execute on this? You know, it starts with a vision. And the vision to me is an articulation of where you want to go, what's the end state you want to create. So, for instance, Tesla wants to redefine transportation and make it more sustainable. That's the broad vision. But then the mission is how you're going to get there or the actions. And then we will make electric cars that way. Then we will build storage technologies for energy and so on. So that is all. Uh, similarly with SpaceX, what Musk talks about the vision is, you know, we'll colonize Mars. But in order to get there, there's a certain set of things you'll have to do. Uh, and then I think that uh, you had asked, what is a good forcing function? What is the way in which one gets kick-started in infusing this product management culture uh, into the organization? I think it does begin at the top. It de- begins at the leadership level and understanding the urgency and the importance of creating this product culture because uh, that's 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 sort of it cascades down from there this is not something that you can do at a middle management level so 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 executive sponsorship a recognition that you need to change is very important and following that then you have to think about uh, structure right you have to think about sort of how you're going to actually create a in in, in fact if you have a services business uh, take 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 a take a client like a mutual client. You, Vanguard is a client of mine. Vanguard is a client of of, of PlanView. So take Plan uh, uh, Vanguard for instance. You know they their line functions will still be the people who manage the funds and the people who manage the investment vehicles that they offer, right? But now the product managers will need to support them. They will need to build, you know, the, whether it's the infrastructure products or the consumer-facing, customer-facing products or the advisor-facing products. So you almost need to create a dual organization. You need to create the product organization and then you have to have your core services organization. And these organizations move with a different clock speed, with a different cadence, and they have different skill sets. So, uh, so this is sort of the notion of the ambidextrous organization, being able to do both things at the same time. Somebody's got to got to uh, you know sell your financial services, but somebody's got to build the enabling products that help you. So it's sort of a, uh, you have to work together. But creating that organization around products, have bringing that product management DNA and thinking, and also by the way thinking differently about incentives. One of the other challenges, Mick, I see in many of the services companies is that they are very loath to invest ahead of revenues. See, tech companies understand that you might have to spend a billion dollars to build a product before you can actually monetize it. You know, I, I serve on the board of Reliance Geo in India, uh, one of the biggest wireless companies in the world. It's the second biggest company in the world. We invested $35 billion in CapEx before we got a single dollar revenue. Now, that's not how wow. a consulting firm works. That's not how a bank works. You know, they, they, they bring in revenues as soon as they launch products. So creating that culture that says it's okay to make that investment. You got to be patient. You have to have roadmaps. You uh, you have to take a longer view. That is a very different DNA from the services DNA. And 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 I'll give you an cl- example close to home. Uh, what do we do at at Northwestern? I'm at Northwestern like at the business school. We run executive education, right? In executive education, we'll run a week long course. You come, we teach you for a week, and then we get paid. We're done. That's the services business. But then I had said five years ago, I said, wait a minute, why can't we? Take some of the content that we teach, record it asynchronously, and then be able to scale it so that we can offer it as an asynchronous product. So that gives you much more scalability. By the way, we'll still have some live content, but we don't do 100% of the content live. So if we can even do 50-50, we've increased our productivity and scalability, and we've actually been able to offer some of that benefit back to the students because the cost is lower, right? What does that mean, though? I have to now create the content. I have to record the content. I have to do post-production. I have to create a website. I have to do the hosting. I have to do interaction design. I have to do the exercises. All that. It's a product. And for an eight-week program, it took us anywhere up to a quarter million dollars to before we got the first dollar of revenue. That was so foreign to our, comp- to our organization 
Because I said, I need money to do a pilot. They're like, we don't do this. Right? We got no budget for this. <laughs> we, 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 spend, we make millions and spend millions on executive education, but there was no line item, right, for product development. Now, a third of our entire revenues come from online courses. And, uh, and I can get whatever budget I want because it has been successful. But that idea that we actually invest, and, and in fact, the first question I was asked is, well, if you spend this quarter million dollars uh, and then nobody comes, if your program doesn't sell, what do we do? I said, we take a risk, right? I did this in another instance, make it micro. I, I, I realized that when I was teaching my executive students and MBA students that a, a really innovative way for them to ex do experiential learning was simulations, sort of, you know, management simulation games, right? I said, let me design. I, I, there's a game that I designed called CloudStrat. Then I designed another one called Digistrat. They're both available on the Harvard catalog now. And these are serious pieces of software. So the investment I had in CloudStrat was $150,000. The investment I had in Digistrat was a quarter million dollars. And just because I had some slush funds that I had access to, I was able to do it. But there was no way a business school will fund anything like that. Today, those simulations are successful products and they are generating annuity revenue streams that will ultimately be millions of dollars of revenues. But it takes faith. Wow, that, that, that is a fascinating story. And you actually, you, you just reminded me what, what I think was, I'm not sure I realized it till this moment, but, but my first product experience, which was, I was, I was an undergrad. And similarly, a professor I was working for, as just as a research assistant, realized that the, the course platform that he was doing was not productized. Not, and, and the course, as well as the courseware. So he decided to productize this, back to HTML, right? This is a late mm -hmm. 90s. This, this platform called it WebCT. It's now Blackboard and is, is actually you know, created an extremely successful business, but only because he convinced the university to productize this, which was, like you said, it completely against the DNA, but yeah. became something that was used by, by countless universities. I've used Blackboard. <laughs> I, right. I, and I, you don't have to like it because yeah. <laughs> it was a very early product, but mm -hmm. having worked on it, I realized that we were building something that'd be useful for for. for you know, such a big part of the market, but someone had to do this investment, like to go from just services to okay, we actually need effective courseware for students and teachers to collaborate. Yeah, and that's the key word, productization, right? Because yeah. productization, this is there's actually a, a design principle behind this, Mick, and that is uh, something as we call DFR or design for repeatability. So, so design for repeatability is the idea that you basically look at repeated patterns in the services or project work that you're doing, and then you you need and you encode some of that and build build it into a, a product, and that then gives you scalability, that gives you better gross margins, and that allows you to basically you know, and also it makes the services independent of people now because now you actually built a product that that lives on, that has a life. Right, exactly. So back to your point on on it, because I actually think this ties together nicely. That your point on executive sponsorship, right? You were able to get your leadership somewhere within Kellogg to take the longer view, make the investment, and make the most successful online course they've seen. So amazing success story. Murray Goldberg, the founder of WebCT, then a, a, an instructor at the University of British Columbia where I was, was able to do the same thing and, and made one of the they made a lot of money for the university yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. as well as well. So this that same. And you're saying that we actually need to provide that same kind of conviction to, in the end, is it, who is it? Is it the CEO of these, these large, is it the line of business leaders? But someone needs to be convinced of this longer view because I'll give one example that I see all the time. When these large banks, healthcare companies, insurers, others, these, these very large services providers, when they don't invest in those platforms, they don't actually create the right kinds of products. When they don't, and it's, I've, I've not thought about this way until you mentioned it, but when leadership doesn't take the longer view that you have investment with a delayed monetization for that investment, and then of course all the lean practices that you, you and others teach to, to de-risk that, that's, we, we, can, we can tackle that separately. How, how do you approach that with these senior executives? How do you get them to get, you know, to build out that DNA of taking the longer view on, around productization? Yeah, so I, I I'll tell you uh, make how it should be done and what and and then how it actually is done. Uh, how it should be done is that it should be a CEO and board level push first to to understand that we we need to change, we need to drive fundamental improvements in productivity and efficiency through 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 productization through embracing this product culture. But what tends to happen more commonly is that it's the uh, 
CIO or the right. CTO's organization that leads this initiative. And, and, and I think that can work and you can get a certain distance there. But at the end of the day, if you don't have that high level business sponsorship and executive sponsorship from the line of business, it's, 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 it's not going to have the impact that it does because, uh, you know, if you want to go the full journey, you need resources, you need uh, redefinition of career paths and roles. Uh, you need HR to think differently about hiring. And incentives, as incentives, you said. Incentives, right? Incentives. Like it's, it's a, <laughs> I'll tell you, there was a, we were talking about health insurance. So there was a, uh, so I was advising a friend of mine who had a healthcare consulting practice. He had a couple, 240 consultants. And they realized that when the Affordable Care Act came about, that they were basically doing a lot of projects for insurers on what is called uh, uh, Pareto optimality, where you know the they, that they, that the government pays you a certain amount to manage the health of a certain number of people, but if those people are sicker than the other insurance companies' customers, then you need to do cross payments. So there is sort of that. And there's also claims integrity, payment integrity. There's, so there's a lot of things that they were doing for clients, and uh, and they're like why should we do this over and over again as consulting engagement, less productized? So I actually advised them. I'd written an article in 2017 in, in Harvard Business Review called Putting Products into Services. And that's where they're like, wow, this, this is what we want to do. So so, so I, I advised them and I helped them. But the biggest problem that they ran into was that they pulled aside a team of 20 people to develop this product, which by the way became a product called Pareto. It was a platform that they built. Mm. Now, how do the how will the career paths and incentives for those folks be managed, right? And one of the developers on that team, one of the product managers on actually it was a developer on the team, didn't make themselves too popular when they said to the consultants, "You make the money and we'll spend it." Building this <laughs> product, so uh, so there's sort of that disconnect because in a consulting firm, billable hours, clients, you know, time and materials, that's, but where's the revenue? So when the, when the consultants look at the product manager, they're like, wait a minute, you guys are just like a cost center. And also the people who are pulled into product management roles, they were afraid. They're like, what happens if this doesn't work out? Then have I been taken off the partner track, right? There's only one track. It's, it's, it's part. And how do you become partner? You bill a lot of hours, you get a lot of clients. Right. So yep. am I going to get derailed? So there was a, this, these incentive questions are important questions. In fact, uh, in some cases, what companies have even done is that if you build these products, you get a royalty when the product gets embedded into right. a sale. So you have to think very creatively about incentives, particularly in such large companies. Otherwise, this is not going to work. Yeah, and I think, so I want to see if I'm tying this together together effectively, because I think your point on, and I think, we're seeing this all the time, right? It should be a CEO and board level push. It's not. It's pushed more from the side of technology, whether it's CIO or CTO. And then you mentioned this almost ending up with a dual organization, right? So if you've got those line function leaders who want to get that you know, next customer, that next feature, that next service, that next commitment, there's a mismatch there between that and what a what a product manager, product leader knows, which is we actually need to make investments into some core APIs and services and, and data layers and so on. Mm-hmm. So Unless, am I getting this right? Basically, unless you've actually got that senior senior level sponsorship, you're not restructuring. You actually have you have very different incentives at what should be more of a two in the box, right? Between the the line function and the product management and, and absolutely, technology. absolutely. Because so it's it's sort of like you know you can you're making incremental changes and you can make incremental progress, but it's kind of band aids uh, on the problem. If you really want to build an effective product organization inside one of these large companies, then then you have to re- you have to rethink structure and you have to rethink incentives and you have to rethink career paths and you have to rethink hiring. So that's an, and 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 also uh, you have to rethink process, right? Uh, agile, project management, those disciplines that come from the product management uh, world need to be infused into those organizations. So I think you can get there halfway. But if you really want to go the whole whole way, it's got to be uh, with business sponsorship. 
Okay, and then so this is, and then in terms of how to get there, so I'll I'll just give you one. This this will actually probably bring us a little closer to that organizational design topic or structure that you mentioned, which I I think is a key one and one a lot of leaders are thinking about and wondering about what what to do there. So I had Jean Michel Lemieux on this podcast, a a close colleague of mine. He was the head of engineering at Atlassian and then at Shopify. Mm-hmm. And he made the the statement on the podcast that well, effective tech companies of any scale, whether you're a startup or you're Microsoft, put about fifty percent of their investment in the core platforms. So like mm. like those billions that you spend on on capex investment in the, in the telco, uh, and the rest into business facing products. Whereas if I look, and of course we have the data plan view at the sort of investment profile across the portfolio of investment of technology spend. In these large organizations going through agile digital product transformations, it's it's 10, 15, maybe 20%. Because of course, mm-hmm. those line functions, they're not incentivized in any way to invest in platforms. They need to right. deliver to their customer. So and, and and you touch on these org chart structures, right? And I think we've 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 seen this really big range. You, where you've got the Microsoft and Tesla, everything reports to engineering, right? Product reports to engineering. You've got the Salesforces and Plan View is the same thing, where there's there's a, a separate hierarchy of product leaders. Right. You've got say AWS. I had some guests from there where they have the single threaded structure, a bit more like Microsoft, but more more product, more producty, but with a single single org hierarchy uh, mm-hmm. in places. Not not all of Amazon is that way, of course. Where do you see the need for creating? Do, kind of cut, what's the cart? What's the horse? Do you, do you recommend putting in place a new measurement model like a V two mom or or OKRs, or do you recommend with org structure first? Because I know I, I get asked this question all the time, and it's a it's a it's a pretty tricky question. I think the cart and horse need to move together in this, right? So it's it's uh, if you put in a new way of thinking about strategy and metrics without the right organization in place, that's not going to work. But if you redo the organization and you don't rethink how incentives and uh, performance metrics work, that doesn't work either. So it's it's not sort of one following the other as much as simultaneously. So you really have to. But if I had a choice, uh, I would think about my organization first and met- metrics later, right? You can only measure something that you've already put in place, and so 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 roles, responsibilities, organization skills that needs to come first. And once that is done, then you can put the OKRs in place, and you can sort of think uh, differently about measurement. Because uh, you know, if you're if you're if you're measuring differently, but you haven't fixed the underlying structure and and and, and processes. That's just useless. It's, and you're going to frustrate people, actually, because they won't be able to make those metrics work. Right. Like VTMOM would not have worked if Benioff had not yeah, said, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. how we're measuring, how we're living on our roadmaps and our goals. So, okay, so your recommendation that this makes sense, because oftentimes I've seen these, and we've measured how many organizations are actually making the shift from project to product effectively. And only a third of those who've started over the last few years are actually doing it effectively. They get stuck. One of the reasons we see them getting stuck is it's happening within technology, but not in those line functions, not in the more senior roles. Right. It's just not getting that visibility. So it's like a glass ceiling mm-hmm. for product management practice. So you're saying executive spot sponsorship from the start as a yeah. as a key enabler. And, and I also want to say uh, to, to to respond to one of the points that you had made earlier, and I I want to sort of do a plus one to the fact that infrastructure platform investments are really important and that comes first. I mean, take, for instance, a health insurance company. Uh, if, if you haven't fixed your underlying platform for ingesting data, for housing data, for you know, sort of analyzing data, for connecting your data lake to all the sort of output applications that need to consume the data, that whole platform, that's the foundation upon which everything is built. And I have seen... I won't name the blue, but one of the blues uh, go through this exercise it, it, three years. It takes three years to because they have to completely rebuild the whole stack of how they and, and they they were migrating more to an open source based uh, stack. So it, it's, it begins with data. So the analogy that I like to give is that when you go to Dubai and you see the Burj Khalifa, it's a very impressive 828 meter building. But what you don't see is the 150 meter foundation below it. You know, without which this building would never work. So all of us not only want to change the shiny object or make, but we want to build the applications. We want to build the building, but we don't think about you know where the data coming from, right? Which, but the same thing applies to artificial intelligence. In you know, because AI, machine learning, 
eat data for a living, right? Yep. So, uh, so if you don't have, and to me, if you don't have the data infrastructure in place, if you don't have the data that is that is clean, that's unbiased, that's complete, that's in single single view uh, version of the truth, there's no point building the application. You can you can tinker around at the edges, but it's not going to get to production scale. No, I think that's and that point as you, as you just said is I think it's going to be even more key now. Like it was understood that how key data is, but now it turns out it's the mode, that's the foundation, that's what differentiates one service. That is the mode, absolutely. Yeah. You know, in a world where anybody can ask questions to 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 generative AI, the mode is going to be: Have you got data that other people don't? Right? Have you have do you have proprietary high quality data? Where now, if I can fine tune those models based on my proprietary data. I have an edge on you, right? So yeah. imagine a company like uh, Bloomberg or a company like McKinsey, if they can, or a company, or what Ernst & Young is, now, EY is not talking about that they've got 100 years of audit data and tax data, right? From hundreds of thousands of clients. If they can train the algorithms on that proprietary data, then they come out much further ahead of a general purpose LLM that you're asking these questions to. So, uh, uh, but then you got to figure out where is the data, how are we going to structure it, how are we going to organize it, and uh, data hygiene, data management, that that becomes a very core skill. Yeah, and I actually, I hope that this is now a board-level catalyst for in these investments in platforms and data. These examples that we were getting, like Bloomberg, they, they did it, right? They, they saw the mm-hmm. value of their data, they made their own large language model, right? They, they trained it. So, hopefully this actually is a catalyst for bringing these, and you, you can, these product management practices around both customer-facing products as well as platforms uh, into these into these organizations. So, I do want to make sure we hit on this. How do you see? Because Mohan, you're bringing up this topic, just generative AI. How do you see it? And I think you you could just cover that. I think for me, one of the aspects I'm seeing now. How do you see it changing the practice of product management, both from a business perspective? Because now all of a sudden, data was mm-hmm. important. Now it's much more important. You know. I don't know if a year ago Splunk would have been bought by 28 billion for its data by by Cisco, right? That that happened yesterday. How do you see it both changing the the kind of business and strategy aspects of? And this is obviously a big question, but I'm sure a lot of people are wondering business and strategy aspects of product management, um, but also the the day to day practice. What, what what do you think we should all be watching out for over the coming months? Yeah, this is a subject that has uh, fascinated me over the past six months or so. And in fact, uh, what I've been working on is a blueprint for all the jobs to be done by product managers from sort of the very inception to the end of life cycle of a product, that whole life cycle. So for instance, you know, you do your analysis of opportunities, then you do the discovery, and then you do the MVP, and then you do the roadmap, and then you do the go-to-market strategy, and then you do the ongoing growth and development, then you do sunsetting. So there's a variety of jobs to be done by product managers across the entire span of product management and product marketing. So I've built a blueprint that, that where I say, here's what product managers do. Then for each of those jobs, I start looking at how generative AI tools can help. So for, for example, let's say that you are now trying to formulate who's my target persona. That's that's in the early stage, trying to understand. So there are persona tools. There are tools that will help you to build a persona. And there are tools that will actually now take your data and do there's 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 the startup companies that are now building live persona. They'll tell you your segments in real time based on streaming data. So um, so I think that literally everything that a product manager does, every job that they do, can be assisted by tools across the board, right? So and of course and and this of course as you know can be done at three levels, right? The first level is that you can query LLMs in in the public domain by uh, prompts and prompt engineering, and that will get you to a certain level. But then the next level is to say, hey, consume this information I have about my customers. I have these surveys, I've done this this research, and this is these are the, this is the insights work we've done. By the way, some of this is uh, structured data, some is unstructured. Now build me a more accurate persona. Now help me to, you know, to, 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 to build a wireframe to do. So I think that every stage of what product managers do 
that generative AI can be infused into the day-to-day work that they do, right? So, uh, and 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 I know that PlanView is doing some fantastic work in the context of managing projects using generative AI, the co-pilot that you've just announced. So, so that's an example of okay. Now, one of the things that I do as a as a product manager is I manage a roadmap, right? So I have a built a roadmap. So now I can use generative AI to figure out, as you do so elegantly in the co-pilot, make and I've seen the demo where. What what's holding my roadmap back? You know, my my release is delayed three weeks. What do I do to fix that? What are the ways in which I can restructure, or and and what are the roadmap items that don't have too many dependencies? Then I can pull that out and 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 push it onto the future. So that's just an example of how you know you you could infuse generative AI capabilities into product road mapping. You can do the same thing with actually I believe generative AI tools will be will build a wireframe by uh, by saying uh, text-based queries, right? Where you say, you know, I'm writing an application, build me a mobile app. This is for a mobile banking application. We people should be able to withdraw, they should be able to see their account, they should be able to build me a wireframe. Boom, you should really do that. Right. So so I think that what is a more positive way to say death by a thousand cuts? You know, it's sort of life by a thousand prompts, right? <laughs> so it's it's not one giant thing yeah. that generative AI will do. It literally will be woven into the fabric of what product managers do and day to. By the way, this abstract away, the statement I made for product management applies to any job, right? Now take a mark, marketing, digital marketer or, or an investment banker or a consultant, same thing. So I think when people today think about generative AI, they get carried away by grandiose statements about what this thing can do and it's a shiny object. But I think that the biggest contributions in the short run will be the day-to-day, right? Every day that I use a generative AI tool to help craft a better email, to help prioritize my day, to help with scheduling, to help with my preparing for my meetings, to help summarize a document that I... These are the 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 things that I think will help us extract value in the short run. Of course, in the longer term, we'll be able to build, you know, self-service customer service platforms and, you know, automated marketing uh, programs and intelligent supply chain management, but start small, right? Start with the day-to-day. That would be my advice. I, I, I could not agree more, Mohan. I think the we're in my own personal experiences using it, so my my own, you know, decades spent Launching products and doing product management, and my direct experiences using the Copilot GPT is, it's 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 really thematically connected to what you say, which is you know if you mini CEO of your job, if you if you've got this orchestrated role, it's complex. Yeah. I remember I was on the the project management podcast, and the we were talking about the fact that the, in some ways, by some measures, building the Burj Khalifa is a less complex exercise than than. Than a product building a product at a bank because the world's not changing out from you. Like you, you, you know, you've got your supply chain, yeah. you've got to deal with escalations, but you're not going to change the building halfway and make it a completely different shape. But of course, we have to do that in digital product management. So there's this additional complexity from all the dynamics and the markets and customers and and in learning. And I think I, I love right. I love how you phrase this. By the way, I did have to have to ask GPT four what the positive version of death by a thousand cuts is, and it said growth by a thousand seeds. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds pretty good. I, I'll say I'll say insights by a thousand prompts. There we go. Insights. I, I actually like that even more. But yeah, I think the the sort of analytical data collection and collaboration will. will I am hoping it catalyzes and helps with the, just the sheer complexity that product managers need to deal with today with this very kind of broad and, mm-hmm. and cross-cutting role that they have. So, And I do think it'll actually leverage a lot of what you've been building, right? Because in the end, the habits, right. those seven habits you've summarized, and we'll link to your materials in your courses um, uh, from the podcast, of course. Uh, these are the kinds of things that everyone needs help with, right? In terms of mm-hmm. you know, curating, getting insight. You know, It's just very hard to get insights to to customers, to engineering, to technologies, to um, to to organizational functions. So, I think we we both share this very well. I, it'd be great to have you end on this as as we as we wrap up. But kind of the, the future of product management, hopefully, is a is an even more effective discipline as as the world of digital just gets more and more complex. Right. All right, Mohan. Any any closing thoughts? Thank you so much this, this, for your amazing insights. Anything else you'd love to like to leave our listeners with in terms of next steps on the journey? No, I think that uh, what we said about the day-to-day, I, I, I remember the 
uh, statement that uh, the quote that uh, journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So my advice in the context of generative AI first, and then I'll talk about product management more generally in the context of generative AI is get your hands dirty, right? Start using it, start, start experiencing the power in little ways. And particularly if you're a business leader, if you're a CEO, just start, start to, because uh, this business sponsorship that I talked about will come only if you have a visceral understanding of the power of technology and generative AI. And that visceral understanding only comes from personal experience. Uh, you know, there's a there's a saying in my native language, Punjabi, which says, uh, if you want to see heaven, you have to die yourself. Right? You can't outsource that experience. So you have to feel it, touch it, and experience it. And, um, and I think that from a product management culture and DNA standpoint, the important question that you have to ask going forward is what is going to be our competitive advantage? How are we going to drive differentiation relative to our competition? And yes, you can create innovative new services. Let's say you're, a, you know, you're an investment firm. You can create a new kind of ETF or you can, you can have better fund managers. But we all know that uh, active management doesn't get you too far. At the end of the day, the reason that going back to a company like Vanguard, why has Vanguard been successful, Mick? It's because they can keep their costs down to 15 basis points. And so now they've actually built an advisory function with 25 basis points with an advisor, 15 basis points without an advisor, robo-advising. So how do you do that? You do that through technology. You do that through automation. You do that. And now you do it through artificial intelligence. But if you're going to get the full power of technology and artificial intelligence uh, to bear, you have to systematize your product management organization. That's how these two ideas are connected. The, the ideas of automation, AI, generative AI, and the idea of creating that product management culture, these are these are connected because to me, the competitive advantage in the future is going, from, going to come from people who redefine efficiency, who redefine effectiveness. I mean, to use an overused term, digital transformation, you know, what does that really mean? It means about getting work done uh, creatively, efficiently, effectively. And, and in order to get the full power of data, technology, and artificial intelligence, you have to systematize the way you think about product management inside any organization. It doesn't have to be a technology company. So that would be my parting words of advice. Amazing, Mohan. Thank you for, for sharing all of that wisdom and, and those profound insights. So uh, please check out Mohan's courses. I could not recommend them more highly. And thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Mohan, for joining us on Mic Plus One today. To stay up to date, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if you're looking for a deeper dive, check out the Project Product book. I know that all author proceeds go supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, and until next time.